This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 296 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to welcome on the show strength athlete and co-owner of Sorinex, Bert Sorin. Now, when Bert and I recorded this conversation, it was about three or four weeks ago now, there was no lockdown from COVID-19. So when he discusses the Summer Strong event that Soranex puts on every year, some of the dates that he talks about in this recording are actually postponed. So make sure you go to the Summer Strong website, keep an eye out for the new dates that they're going to push it back to. So before we get to that conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show so you know when new episodes come out. Leave feedback. I really do love reading the feedback, but most importantly, leave a rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are to other people looking for a podcast like this. At this time when everyone's in isolation, there's no better time to educate ourselves. So my goal is to get this almost 300-episode library of amazing people's stories and philosophies out to every single ear hole that needs to hear it on planet Earth. So take your social media, email, word of mouth, and help me share these incredible men and women's stories. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Bert Soren. Enjoy. I just want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're extremely busy, but I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks a lot, James. I appreciate you giving us a call and, and setting it up, man. This is this is an honor. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I'll do a shout out to Eric Katzenberg from 511 Tactical who connected us as well. A great company that I work with now, and um, I'm looking forward to to uh, seeing where this goes. Oh, uh, yeah. Eric's a great dude. Katz, as he's known, is, is he's awesome. We've worked with him for years. And so that's, yeah, it's great that he set us up. Enjoying, enjoying the opportunity. It'd be fun to get this, this uh, little conversation going. Absolutely. All right. Well, very first question. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? 
Uh, Planet Earth today uh, is, in fact, where I am and actually sitting in Lexington, South Carolina at the Sornex headquarters. So that's this where we are located. We do all of our manufacturing right here in the U.S. Um, for strength conditioning equipment. We're out of Columbia proper, I guess you would call it Columbia, which is the, the capital city of South Carolina. And Lexington is a little bit of a semi-rural adjunct. And that's where our, where our shop is. Fantastic. All right. Well, I love to start chronologically. So start at the very beginning. Where were you actually born? And then um, tell me a little bit about the dynamic of your parents. Oh, right on. Okay. Yes. Interesting question. So yeah, I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. So I'm I'm probably sitting 12 miles from where I was born. Um, strangely enough, I've, I'm 43 years old and I've lived here my entire life, although I've traveled, I wouldn't say all over the world, but a lot of it. Um, I keep finding myself back here, not only because I have family, I have roots, uh, and also a business that would be rather expensive and a bad idea to try to move. Um, but uh, yeah, right right from here in South Carolina, grew up right here. And um yeah, uh, parents met in college. Uh, my father was a track and field athlete. He was a thrower, a discus thrower, shot putter, and uh, parents met. And uh, they were only together for probably, I think, married maybe eight or nine years. Um, but uh, they divorced when I was two and a half, I believe. And But they lived generally in the same town. And so I've seen both of them since I was a kid and and uh, lived with my mom for till I was in college and then worked with my dad after college. So that's kind of how my dynamic went. <laughs> now, I know that you obviously your dad is kind of like the uh, the genesis of Soronix and, and I want to kind of reverse engineer all the way back to to his upbringing. So, sure. you know, you're well, gonna... first of all, he's not kind of the genesis of it. He, he is, he's, he's certainly <laughs> right. the guy who started. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, over, you know, underplay that whatsoever. So, I mean, he was, uh, he, he was Sornex. That was, that was it. Right. So, so with, with his upbringing, cause obviously here's, here's a man that you're going to, you know, tell the story of, of realizing that things could be done differently and then ultimately done a lot better than they were. Lead me through his journey as he tells it as a young athlete and what what made him realize that um yeah that that in a way the kind of strength and conditioning era that he grew up in in some areas was doing it wrong. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I appreciate you asking because that it does like any good uh you know movie or superhero, not to say that our life is a movie and we're not superheroes, but there's always a backstory that that creates the the present day right uh batman was a certain way because of something that happened to him as a kid and and so really you know not to dive super deep but i'll, I'll dive somewhat you know pops was born in in uh new jersey uh it's kind of suburbs in new jersey right outside of newark and you know, you know tough area in the 50s and uh was an only child parents worked it was dad was a bartender mom ran uh kind of like a maitre d at a at a um at a country club. So they were gone a lot. And basically he was somewhat of a latchkey kid and was left, you know, Hey, don't go outside the yard and learn to cook and be self-sufficient, you know, for, at, a, at a very early age. And so he had to learn if he was going to have a good time. Um, he was, it, it was up to him to kind of figure it out. So he was very uh, good with his hands. He was good with uh, designing things and toys and things like that. But he talked about he used to watch the Sunday movie marathon or something they'd have on TV. And some of the, when the first movie he ever saw was uh, was Hercules. And so he would watch Hercules and what would watch, you know, Samson and all this, you know, all the this typical cowboys and Indians kind of stuff of the day. 
And because he was by himself, he would watch these movies constantly. So that, that kind of physical culture was pumped into his brain and then he had trouble reading. So, uh, his dad would go and buy him magazines, the strength and health magazines, because that he pops thought the Hercules was cool. So of course he wanted to read about things like that. And, and he got really imbibed in the iron game culture, the strength conditioning and, and strenuous life culture from a very, very early age. That was something he always looked up to. And because he started reading those magazines because he was interested, he actually learned to read and he would basically get field and stream or sports, a field magazine and strength and health, which is kind of funny when you look, you know, he's almost 70 years old and the two things that he's really into still, as well as myself are the outdoors and strength and conditioning. So it's strange how something that was potentially seen as a weakness was a catalyst of literally an, you know, <clears throat> one of the most you know, game changing people in the strength industry in our generation, but also uh, the genesis of a, of a business that employs a ton of people that fast forward, um, learned to, to learn to, to lift, went up to the York barbell, which was in York, Pennsylvania was following the names like John Grimmick, uh, Norb Shemansky, um, Tommy Kono. Those are the, the great Olympic lifters of the time that actually kind of started the era of bodybuilding as well. And so Pops was around that and actually used to work out at the same gym uh, with uh, Dezo Ban was actually his, his coach. And you could see like uh, the tight tan slacks of Dezo Ban. Those are websites, kind of this cultish weightlifting website. That was actually dad's coach. There's also also Anthony Dottillo training in the same gym who was Pops' uh, training partner um, who then went on to popularize use of partial movements in the power rack. And it was really off of the power rack that when dad was in high school, he altered and changed to where they could train inside the power rack. Because uh, Sorry, I'm getting kind of deep water. But what people don't realize is in the York Marbell days in the 1950s and early 60s, they designed a thing called the power rack. Well, it was only – forward to back the depth of the rack you usually see three to four feet now well back in the day it was about eight nine inches and it was only for used using with uh, isometric exercises later do we find out that the reason why one of the reasons why they created that rack was allegedly to cover up the drug usage that the americans started using uh when they started winning olympic medals so they would equate these big lifts to doing isometric lifting in these racks, which I'm sure didn't hurt, but you don't really hear of a lot of Olympic lifters doing isometrics these days. Uh, and it really was covering up Dianabol use, but that's a different story. So your barbell, <clears throat> Bob Hoffman, who is uh, a very well-known name in that world created the, the power rack as in, as a teenager pops realized, well, you could train inside the power rack. He cut the power rack apart, welded some pieces in there and really probably made one of the first metal power racks back in probably 1965, 68, <clears throat> somewhere through then that then they started training with some partial movements. Anthony Attila, who then became the de facto mentor of an, a guy named Charles Poliquin, who, who many people know nowadays. So that's kind of a, an interesting catalyst that you have to look at in the trajectory in the history there was also a bodybuilder that was working out of the gym at that time named dave draper who then moved over to the west coast and became the blonde bomber and really put weightlift or uh, put uh, bodybuilding on the map pre-arnold days so for one reason or another richard was 
in kind of the nexus of what a lot of what was happening in the strength world. And he didn't know it as a teenager, but there was a drive where he found purpose there and, and there was love. That was his first love and probably his most constant love was the weights. And, uh, from there in 1967, 68, he, uh, well, he had two years back to back. He won the, uh, state championship in the discus. That was a pretty big deal for New Jersey cause they had some really good discus throwers and was recruited by, uh, Art Schwartz, who was one of the better U S discus throwers of all time to come to university of South Carolina, went down there and, uh, threw the discus and shot put for four years. And upon arriving, uh, they didn't have weightlifting. They didn't have any method to weightlift down here. So 1968 in the S in the, in the South, uh, we were in the SEC at that point, but weightlifting wasn't a big deal for sports. And of course you hear some people talk about, um, you know, athletes being muscle bound if they would have lifted weights. And so that was a popular misconception. You got to remember 1968 It's right. You know, coming off the summer of love, you're talking about Woodstock hippie deal, the whole nine, it wasn't really a fertile ground for strength and conditioning. So even at 18 years old, dad balked at that and said, well, if, if I weightlift all the time is, which is like, which I love to do. And I throw the discus because I'm good at it. But I, sit, I tend to beat everybody because I'm strong. And he figured that out at a pretty young age. So he was a heavy proponent of not only exercise, not only weightlifting, but Olympic style, what we would consider now human performance style lifting and strength and conditioning, which is explosive and reactive um, and, and velo- you know, a bit of velocity-based work as well, of course, at a rudimentary level. So at 18 years old, he asked the coaches where the weight room was. They said, well, we don't have one. You'd get muscle bound. And so he borrowed a car and drove back up to New Jersey and picked up all of his personal weightlifting gear and brought it back down to the University of South Carolina and petitioned and begged, barred and stole to let them for the university to give him some wood to build some racks and um, built the first weight room at the University of South Carolina as a freshman student. And uh, kind of started the athletes lifting there um, early on. So kind of cool how it all started out. But that's that's really the the start of how Sornex and the understanding of the strength world and the love of the strength world started. Yeah. And then there's, there's so much power in what you talked about with him being challenged by reading. Because I've had so many people on that, you know, were academically challenged myself. I was a straight C student in school. And then when I found firefighter, um, uh, fire school and then paramedic school, it was a straight A student. And it's, again, understanding that just because you don't fit that box that we put our kids in doesn't mean they're not going to excel. And you just have to light that fire. And I think a, yes. a story you talk about, which I love because it reminds me so much of when I was little, um, is your dad going at 13 years old and taking a train and going to... Yeah. to hang with these people and I did the same thing as, as a young martial artist I go to like Bruce Lee conventions and and of you course. know but, it, but it's because it's that passion and and um yeah I mean I think that speaks so powerfully to if you hate every day at work or if you hate the subjects you've chosen at school take a step back and, and ask yourself what is it you really love to do 100%. You're, you're exactly right. And kind of, I was talking to my wife when you talk about the C student kind of deal. Uh, I was as well. I, I think I got my first C in like second or third grade. My wife's like, wait, how did you get a C in second grade? And I go, I didn't really care. I didn't understand it. It was hard for me to learn things I didn't really understand. I, w- I was into the social aspect of school. I thought it was fun, but 
I didn't get things for one reason or another. Well, I was a C student probably until my junior year in college, which when I started throwing far and started studying things that I wanted to study, I was a 3.7 all American and all SEC academic guy. Well, I didn't get really smart all of a sudden. It, it was there, but then I finally found a topic that I that I really wanted to dive deep. And I, I think you're exactly right. The passion piece in success, I would almost put above ability because people can have talent and ability, but if there's not the fire for that with that passion, there's, there's, there's no fuel because it's always going to take you longer to achieve what you're going after than your, than your talent alone can give you. There has to be the, the passion is what keeps you coming back. Honestly, too many times, more times than mathematically seem feasible until you get to the top of that mountain or get through that wall or whatever it is. And so if people don't have passion, I'll, I'll kind of go ahead and just, I hate to say, I kind of clock them out in my mind because I know they're never going to get there. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so an interesting story. Your dad obviously is coming up, you know, through the Olympic lifts and, and the powerlifting and the and use of the barbell. Um, the power rack you're talking about is funny. I can envision what you're talking about because I remember Bruce Lee's books. He was doing isometrics. That was one of his big yes. things. Yes. So yes. Yeah, with all the all the holes in it. Yep. Um, and, and not that that's a terrible thing, but I'll just say again, the Olympic lifters in the U.S. weren't beating the Russians because of isometrics. <laughs> that's <laughs> just how it goes um, yeah but, yeah well then so so what's an interesting journey i think so for your dad and obviously you know it chronologically will bring you in a moment but you and i were born around the same time early 70s or mid 70s um i was born into a world where you know joe wider had already influenced the fitness market and it was all machines and and tie uh jazzercise and you know all those kind of gadgets that they realized they could market but right. he'd already had this background with what we've now gone back to, which is traditional strength training. So what what does he talk about as his perspective whilst understanding, you know, what we realize is, is strength and conditioning for performance, but witnessing this bodybuilding influence um, marketing that, that you and I grew up in as young men? Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about Joe Weider. I had a chance to meet with him uh, right before he passed, and he was a, a very interesting person. Of course, an icon in the industry, you know. And, and if sure, a lot of people know the story. You know, he was kind of who found who we talked about earlier, Dave Draper. He's the one that really found a young Arnold Schwarzenegger and Franco Colombo and brought them to the U.S. on a stipend. And so you really look at you start really playing it out and go, okay, well, without Joe Weider, there would have been probably no bodybuilding. There would have been no Arnold. There would have been uh, action movies and action things like that as we know it would not have occurred. Um, a lot of things kind of tie back to that. Uh, you, you wouldn't, I don't think you have a rock without Arnold, right? Um, so there's a lot of things that have kind of spawned off of that. But Weider, Weider was a physical culture um, – enthusiast. And I, from what I understand, he saw an opportunity. He loved bodybuilding. He loved the aesthetics of bodybuilding, but I have some of his old pictures that still show a beer hall. I actually have the picture blown up in my, my man cave. Uh, he had it commissioned and it was a beer hall picture of a lot of, a lot of just burly guys 
with, you know, a couple of them had their shirts off. They were in a, in a beer hall full of, you know, old dusty wood and steel and, you know, elk heads on the wall and stuff like, and, and it, it boiled it right back down to just, we're going to lift a big thing and see if someone else could lift it as well. It wasn't about aesthetics. It wasn't about stage presence. It wasn't about any of that. So I think in his heart, he was still just a human performance nut. Um, I believe he was also a businessman who saw the burgeoning uh, opening that was created around those that mid to late 60s that he, in many cases, uh, produced himself of bodybuilding. And, and because that was when movies started really kicking on and more color movies and things like that. And bodybuilding and Hollywood and all that stuff really just went hand in hand. Um, <clears throat> my dad, on on the other hand, never really jived with the bodybuilding world. Um, he saw very little use in it. And, and it was because it was, he grew up in the Olympic lifting world, which was power. And, and, you know, he was watching guys like Norb Shemansky who weren't pretty aesthetically, you know, he had glasses, he had a little bit of a belly and, you know, it, but also one of the best lifters of all time. Or if you even look at, um, you look at, uh, Oh gosh, the big Russian, that broke all the world records first 500 pound clean and jerk uh, name will come to me in a minute. Uh, Alexiev broke 82 world records. You, you would look at him and say, that's the worst physique ever. I never want to look like that guy. And he was the, the strongest, most popular athlete in the world at that time. So those are the people that my dad looked up to and just always saw function of over, over the, the look and the aesthetics as things. So I didn't grow up in the bodybuilding world. I grew up appreciating bodybuilders who were strong. I appreciated, um, the determination and, and that it took and planning to, to reach a height at anything you're doing. But, but bodybuilding was never really a portion of our, uh, tutelage or training here in the Soren world. So, yeah. So getting to, to, you know, your birth and, and forward, um, <laughs> how did, how did strength and conditioning factor into your childhood? Uh, it was interesting. So I was always around, you know, my, my parents divorced and then I would go and visit my dad. And when I did, of course, you know, dad's probably at the time he was 28, 30, somewhere through there, 27, 28. So he was, you know, still hitting it hard. I mean, the guy's been hitting it hard his whole life, but he was, as you well know, when you're 27, you feel great. So he was still hitting big numbers and, and, um, and training. And he, we had a garage gym at his house. And so I grew up as a little kid, you know, playing with my dinosaurs and GI Joe men on the dumbbell racks while dad was lifting these weights. And so of course, as a little kid, you think your parents are Superman anyway, and that dad close to actually was, um, was something that of course I just, I saw that as, wow, that's, that's amazing. Like I, that's what I want to be like. And, and, and you see the, the excitement around, it. you see the respect, uh, for the other men in the gym and, you know, and you kind of see pecking orders established you see all this, this stuff. And you, you know, it, as a, at the heart of a little boy, it hits you and you're like, okay, that this is, this is how this works. Uh, and you see strain and you see struggle and, and, and dad would involve, involve me in it to an extent, just like I do with my son. It's not, it wasn't ever pushed extremely hard, but there was definitely exposure. I mean, my son, you know, working out and I call working out, this is like 10 minutes of work of actual, probably workouts, uh, maybe a solid 20 reps total, uh, once a week. And he deadlifted a hundred pounds at six years old. 
weighing probably 55 pounds. Um, and I, th- you know, people, Oh, it's too young. This isn't that I was like, well, let, we, we've kind of all proven that that isn't the case. You know, people, Oh, you're going to stun his growth. I'm like, well, okay. My first deadlift, my first double body weight deadlift was 112 pounds. That means I weighed 56 pounds. Um, and my mom is five, two, and I grew to be six, three. So if that was the case, I, then what was I going to be six, eight? I don't, I don't know. So I don't think from what they've you know said that people don't, uh, their growth is not stunned unless there's a huge injury. But again, at eight years old, I was jumping off the roof of my house and landing on my feet, you know, talk about a crazy depth jump. Um, you know, and I would say that was creating a lot more shearing force in my joints than any hundred pound deadlift was. Yeah. So that being said, but you know, dad, dad realized how you get kids excited. There were little bribes, you know, <laughs> like you, you get a, a personal record in the deadlift and get to write your name on the, uh, on the little board in the room along the, the other men, or, you know, you get the little $3 GI Joe thing. If you get a PR and some people say, Oh, you gotta, that's, that's a wrong way to do it. You don't want to award for work. It's like, eh. but let's be honest with kids. They have to see some sort of positive or negative effect when they're first starting, you can't just have a passion for it right off the rip. Maybe some people can, but if you're training a kid or a dog or a person or anything, there has to be some kind of economy associated with it, at least until they have intrinsic motivation, which let's be honest, probably isn't until their teenage years at best. So whether it was, you know, climbing trees. And if I could, I had a little ribbon that I would put up higher and higher in the tree. And, you know, there was always a competitive nature to everything that dad, when I'd go visit him, it's like, okay, can we hike further? Can we climb a tree higher? Can we lift a heavier weight? And there was always something there that showed me that coming up over and above what is typical, there's a, there's a benefit and advantage to it. Um, and in some ways, you know, it's almost like a little bit of a Spartan agogi. I don't know. It was a lot, you know, I've seen 300. It, no one was punching me. It wasn't, it wasn't horrible. It was always positive, but I was just around that all the time. And I, I began to love it. Um, you know, was I weightlifting all the time? No, not until probably 13 years old, but at 13, I don't, you know, I doubt I've missed a workout a week since I was probably 13. Yeah. And I'm 43 now and it's worked out pretty well. Absolutely. And then you, you mentioned about growing up around that. That's something I witnessed. I, I coach at a CrossFit gym, um, kind of very part time. And the kids that see their parents, there's so much value to that. It doesn't have to be in a gym space. It can be chopping wood. It can be whatever. Sure. But back to what we're supposed to be doing. That tells the child, Hey, this is normal. And this is me yes. missing the lift. This is me failing. This is me falling over exhausted. This is me, you know, uh, getting frustrated, getting angry, whatever it is. And they see the raw reality, mm-hmm. not the Instagram highlight of, like you said, the superhero they see their parent. Like, no, this is, I did a jujitsu tournament with my son. They had an adult division and a kid's division. I won one and I got tapped out once. And it was great. I much prefer that sure. than if I'd won both because it, it smashes that stigma that, you know, we're superheroes and they see the work that's required for whatever their goals end up being. Uh, you got that right. And that is, that is, that is so accurate. And, and if you're, if you're not pushing the envelope, you never get to that point, right? You, if you're not redlining some everything, I mean, okay. If, if our goal is we, we sit down and nothing against college football or basketball or anything, but if, if my only interaction with the something that's strenuous is sitting on the couch and watching some other person do it. There's no barrier of entry. 
there's no barrier of entry. There's no, there's no, um, bar to get over. There's no failure option. There's no nothing. It's just pure entertainment. And really, if you look at it, it's almost hedonistic. So yeah, I, I want, I want our kids and my kids and even kids that live next door to me that come over and, you know, I, I love watching them fail. And sometimes people go, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe my wife, my wife is awesome. But sometimes she's like, Oh gosh, you know, Ezra, something happened today. And, and I love it. Or if they cry, I, I actually kind of like it because I go, that's one, le- let's get that one out of the way. That's one less time that they're going to emotionally break down. Let, that's one more rep of the squat. Every time I see them go through something hard, I see that like a heavy squat rep. I go, he's going to be stronger tomorrow because he went through it today. We got to go through it. We have so many reps we have to go through to get strong. Let him go through them now. I'm okay with that. And, and getting frustrated, getting pissed off, throwing something down, having to deal with it. Great. Those are just reps. Let's go through them. Early, earlier, the better. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny you said about the um, the not lifting when you're younger. Um you know that you hear so much. Oh, this is this is bad for you. This related to exercise, and and firstly, you know, you you look at the way the world is. Like, well, what's the alternative? Like you said, watch TV and eat cheeseburgers. That's clearly <laughs> right. not going to be a good one. And the other thing is, take a step back and look at what we did until a hundred years ago. Children were out on the farms carrying, you know, feed right. and pails of milk and you know, rocks and, and, you know, some other tribes are already out hunting or gathering. The human body is meant to do incredible things. And, and we've got this image now that we're a bunch of China dolls wrapped in cotton wool. You're a hundred, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. Exactly. Climbing, running, throwing all these organic movements that have kept us alive for the last, since humans have been on the planet. And now it's only in a sporting atmosphere. And then unfortunately it's, the only interact sometimes the only interaction is either playing it on a video game or watching someone else do it. I've said it before. I'm not interested in being a player in someone else's movie. I, I, I love watching people chase their passion, but to do it and, and supplant my own dreams just to watch someone else's, maybe I'm just too selfish, but I, I know I have so many days here on this planet and I'm not really looking to give any of my days to someone else. It's yeah. not doing it. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the to the genesis of of Soranex, but before we do, I thought it was an incredible story of how you became a collegiate athlete and, and the bizarre <laughs> circumstances. And I'm sure you told it before, but I'd love I'd love my audience to be able to hear so that way, you know, realize you can literally, you know, engineer your own environment if needed. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's funny that you, you remember that story. It's it's very Forrest Gumpish. And in many ways, and I would kind of look at a lot of my life as, as Forrest Gumpish until like I really understood my passion and then started understanding that I could almost construct the stage. Um, so yeah, I, I had lifted weights, uh, through high school and I enjoyed it. Did I love it? Love it. Mm, I thought I did, but I, I learned to really love it later, but it's kind of like the girlfriend you have in ninth grade, you say you love her, but you don't even know what that means at that point. It was kind of the relationship I had with the weights. I knew I did it. I knew I enjoyed doing it. I knew it gave me benefit and gave me a, an identity because I wasn't seen as an athlete prior to that. Um, I lived, uh, out near a lake and I enjoyed fishing and hunting and shooting BB guns and building fires. And that was just kind of my life. And then I would go and lift weights four days a week. And so there wasn't really a, um, an interaction with organized sport until I was a junior in high school. And that was because I had broken bones just being a kid the couple years prior and I was unable to do the sports. 
Um, so I threw a couple of years at discus. I was, I was bad at it. I was a late bloomer. I had a late birthday. So I was, you know, I got to college at 17 years old and that doesn't really help in the SEC, the Southeastern conference when, you know, the best, some of the times the best of the best, at least football, they, you know, sometimes call it NFL light. And, um, but that's the caliber of the athletes you're getting. So I didn't plan on doing track and field really one day past my high school, my high school career. But my father was a very good discus thrower, as I've already said. And, and, uh, so I always held him in super high regard. Like I never could reach that level. Didn't even try. It goes like, oh my gosh, that, that would have, I would have, I, I remember thinking I would have loved to compete against my dad just so I could have seen greatness because I never saw that in high school. And, um, so I went to the university of South Carolina to go to school and with no intent on being an athlete, I had an intent on really kind of living out all the eighties movies that we saw because that looked fun. And I liked girls and I was like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to do keg stands and panty raids and these whole funny things, these antics that you see in these movies, because, you know, I'm an immature idiot kid and I'm 17 years old and, you know, lived in the house. I'm going to go out and have a big time. So I got to college and I got there like a week early. You're supposed to acclimate. And I stayed drunk for like seven straight days and just rode my bike around and went to all the parties and just had the best time. I was like, this is awesome. Like I'm doing it straight out of, you know, whatever cool eighties movie back to school or whatever. And the last, the last day, I think it was like a Tuesday. Uh, you know, I woke up and kind of hung over. I was like, all right. And even at that point in my life, I was like, all right, I need to work. I need to go work out. I've kind of screwed off, uh, for a week and I'm not going to go party today. I need to work out. So I called my dad and I said, Hey, you guys, you know, you guys, as in Sorenex, I wasn't here yet, but it was a family business. And I'd worked in the business in the welding shop and all the other manual labor jobs that you get. And uh, and so I called and I said, hey, we, we put some of the weightlifting equipment down at the university's football or athletic weight facility because there was no football only. It was just all the athletes. And he said, sure did, because I knew they had some of our things called the auto spot bench press that like kind of hand the bench press out to you. And, and that was one of our proprietary designs. And I knew the other place didn't have them. And I grew up lifting on good stuff. So I was a little bit of a, of a diva. I'm like, I'm not lifting on crap when I have the access to good stuff. And you, know, you just don't do it. So I called and said, hey, you think you could get me into the weight room down there? And he said, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give the coach a call. So he calls Rock, um, Rock Oliver, and who was the, the strength coach at the time. And calls me and coach says, yeah, sure. Tell him to come down after the athletes are done. Well, again, you have to remember I'm 17 years old. I don't take a lot of detail on board. And so when I just got done lunch, I said, oh, let me go down there. I didn't remember when dad said to be there or not be there. And I wasn't really concerned with it. And I just figured I'd kind of bullshit my way into it. So I went down to the Williams Bryce Stadium, <clears throat> seats 80,000 people, and the weight rooms in the base of like the typical, you know, actually, if you've seen the movie, the program, it's where the program was filmed. So I go in there and I walk in and there's just athletes everywhere. There's kids everywhere doing all kinds of stuff. And this is probably a 12, 10, 12,000 square foot room. And there's just people, there's probably a hundred, 150 people in there just doing all kinds of craziness. Well, it's August in, you know, in the school year and it's the first week back at school. So all the, all the teams are practicing. And if anyone knows anything about college sports, generally two o'clock is like ground zero, the craziest time ever for a college weight room. Cause everyone's done with class. 
So there's cheerleaders and baseball players and football players and track athletes. There's just people running around everywhere. And I'd never seen this. And I was like, this is awesome. These are a bunch of kids like my age. They're all having this, they're doing, there's like teams in here and they look badass and they're like getting after it. This is cool. So I just kind of walk in, but also in August, everyone's new. So no one really knows who's supposed to be there and who's not. And back then they, you didn't have to wear South Carolina gear. You could just kind of wear whatever. So everyone's new. I walk in, I don't raise any eyebrows and I just go find a platform. No, I find a bench press. It was open and I load up and I do whatever my bench press sets were five times five that day, probably 150 pounds or something. And cause I was not strong. And although I liked lifting, I still just, I hadn't hit puberty very long at that point. And so I was just still a kid and, uh, did bench press. So that was cool. And then, um, I look over and they're doing, um, vertical jump testing. I said, Oh, that looks awesome. And I watched these kids jump up and I, I knew I could jump pretty high. Um, I just had that ability since I was a little kid. And, um, so I'll walk over there and they measure my reach and, they go up and I jump and measure, you know, they do the whole deal and I get in line and they give me a piece of paper. I'm like, well, okay. And I write my reach down. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm just kind of getting to go on this ride. It's like being at Disney world and you didn't have to pay, but you get in the line and you get to still go on the rides. But the line isn't three hours long. And the line is <laughs> and the line's like, you know, a minute and a half long. I'm like, this is perfect. Um, so yeah, exactly. I get in there and I jump and boom, I was 20, 29 and a half, I believe was, was the thing. He was like, wow, that's pretty good. I was like, okay, thanks. And I just kind of walk off. I didn't know if 29 was good, bad or indifferent. I didn't know. And, um, I go back and I get on the, on the platform, the Alico bar, Oodle home plates says, this place is awesome. I knew good stuff. So I walk over and start doing some power cleans. And, um, I'm doing my thing. I look back over and there's the, the same group is in a line going out of this office. And, and I'm like, what are they doing? And I look over and they're getting body fat measurements. I was like, this is awesome. Like I'd never seen this before either. I felt like this was part of Rocky four where they're doing all the diagnostics on Ivan Drago. And I was like, this is cool. So I'm like, I'm going to go get that done. That sounds great too. And I walk over and I'm, I'm standing in line. So I get to the fellow who's sitting down. And I walk up to him. He goes, okay, what's your name? Like, where's your sheet? And I was like, ah, oh, here you go. And I hand him my sheet that I didn't know what the sheet was for. And he goes, what's your name? And I give him my name. He goes, okay, what sport are you? Kind of like he could tell that I was didn't know really what I was doing. That's like, uh, and so I totally made up. I said, well, my name is Bert Soren. I'm going to walk on the track and field team, um, which I totally had not planned on doing. There was no there, there was before I, that those words came out of my mouth, that was like not happening. Um, and he goes, Oh, okay. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm just going to tell this random dude this. So he'll stop bugging me. And he goes, well, what, what event? I'm like, gosh, why is this guy drilling? And I said, well, shot put in discus. <clears throat> I threw in high school. I wasn't very good, but I'm looking to walk on. I'm like, all right, that's enough information. This guy's going to take my measurements and we're going to move on with our lives. And he goes, oh, he goes, well, how far did you throw? And I'm like, all right. I threw 44 feet and I threw 134 in the discus. And he goes, that's not very good. And he goes, what did you get at state? I said, I didn't make it to state. He goes, yeah, not with those numbers. I was like, listen, I already said I wasn't good. You don't have to like, you know, drill it in, you know, rub it in. And he goes, oh, okay. He goes, uh, well, my name is Larry Judge. I'm the throws coach at the University of South Carolina. And, um, and I'll see you tomorrow for practice. And I said, uh, well, first of all, I'm thinking, how the hell did I lie to the one person on campus that could call me on it? That's just, 
dumb luck, right? Like out of the 30,000 people on campus, I lie about the throw, about throwing to the throws coach. And I go, okay, coach. Well, yeah. Uh, isn't that like a spring sport? Cause this is August. He goes, son, you're in college now. He is. It's a, it's a, it's a career. It's a year round deal. I was like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, all right, let me wiggle off this hook very quickly. I don't need to have my body. I actually, he'd already done my body fat. I was 172 pounds of 7% body fat. And I was like, okay, so you could tell I probably wasn't SEC throwing material with, you know, my 220 pound bench. And I think I'd cleaned 275 at that point. I was a little bit good at that, but you know, a 300 pound squat. So I knew I was definitely outgunned and I said, okay, well coach, I'll I'll try to make it, try to make it to to practice tomorrow. And he's like, no, if you're going to be on the team, you will make it tomorrow. And I was like, oh, okay. So I left, I I finished my workout and I left and I went back to my dorm room and I called dad and I was like, Hey, how's it going? He's like, Oh, how's your workout? I was like, well, I think I joined the track team. He's like, wait, what? Because he had gone to the university of South Carolina as the hot, as the top rate top rated and recruited discus thrower in the nation at that time so he was like the guy and i was not even on the radar of any college ever and so he had this weird like oh you're going on the track team to like go in my footsteps you don't have to do this to try to you know do whatever you're attempting to do and also kind of thinking yeah you're you're outgunned for this this isn't (laughs) i've seen you you're not that caliber that i was you know he goes well what are you gonna do i said well uh, I guess I want to show up tomorrow and see what it's about. And uh, that was arguably one of the top decisions of my entire life right there. Because what happened, you know, within five years, I learned how to train. I learned how to work. I learned how to push through barriers that later found out that we had one of the I didn't realize I was walking on to the most kind of the most difficult, legendary, hardworking track and field teams in the nation and people still talk about to this day i've I've talked to other coaches they go oh yeah the mid-1990s gamecocks were some of the you know that was that was one of the classic throws groups of all time and the amount of work that you guys did is still talked about these days i didn't understand i was literally going from kindergarten to my master's level just by walking in the wrong line and it about killed me physically mentally emotionally a number of times but long story short, f- uh, five years later, I was graduating, uh, being a four-time All-American, uh, an SEC champion and record holder, uh, team captain, and uh, preparing for one of two Olympic trials I competed in. So during that that five years, I learned in many ways the most important lessons I learned that created my ability to work in this industry, but also just my identity. I never seen myself as an athlete before. I always held them in high regard. I didn't know what it meant to be an athlete or be good. And in those five years, I built a framework of what my expectations were, kept exceeding those. And then just finally one day realized, oh, expectations are great, but those are just a stepping stone. And I could literally be as good as I want to be. If I put in the work, I just I just can't quit. And I could literally write my movie, write my ticket, write my story. And all I have to do is clock in and never quit. And that was a, just a feeling you get when you understand it's like a key to the universe. You go, Oh, this, I could literally do anything. I just, I have to do the work and I have to be tougher than everyone around me. 
and I just have to go. And I, and, and I've talked to some, some seals that have of course been through buds. And I asked one of them, I said, how did you know that you were going to, cause you hear any, any person who's going through buds, if they think at, at any point that they're going to quit, they always quit. You can't even let it get in your mind. And I said, how did you make it through buds? Like, I don't understand like the mindset. And he goes, Oh, it's very simple. He goes, I knew I was going to get through or they would find me dead on the beach somewhere. And I just go, Oh, it was literally that simple. He goes, it was that simple, that simple. Do everything they asked to do, never give up. And the only time you would actually give up is when your body totally gives out. And he goes, and then they find me dead on the beach and then it would be fine anyway. And I was like, Whoa, it's literally that black and white. But I look back to my athletic career and I go, yeah, that's kind of how I looked at it. It's, it's, I had to do this because of one reason or another. And, and at that time we didn't have a lot of money and I ran out of my little bit of savings that I had to, to stay in college. And, and the coaches had told me, they said, listen, you're a walk on. We didn't ask you to come here. And, and, um, if you want to get money to, to come here, you have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to score the SEC championship meet and you have to, uh, make it to the NCAA national championships. And I, I said, okay, then that is number one, a priority on my list. Grades are a good idea, but I can't, I can't get to class if I don't throw far because throwing far is going to give me money to go to school. And if I could do that, then I could get good grades. So really it kind of flip flop. My academics took a backseat and then it was just go, the bigger I get, the stronger I get, the farther I throw, the farther I throw, I could go to this college thing. And this is pretty rad. And that became my, my driving force. Yeah, it's a, such an amazing story. And what blows me away is that you were at one college initially and then training with another one. And then, to, to, you know, like you said, to, to ultimately then transition over. But it really screams of the word, why not? Like you find yourself in a position like, all right, well, why, why wouldn't I just go along with this? And, and this door is open and just walk through and see where it takes me. That's exactly right. That's the open door. That was kind of when the open door theory started. And, and then it, it manifested itself through the rest of my life. And I look back, I go, the biggest door I walked through was that one day. Practice starts tomorrow at two. And I could have easily gone, oh, that's cool. And I did. I said, okay, that's good, coach. I'll you know talk to you later. He goes, no, if you're going to be on the team, you'll make it. And that was, he swung that door open and that door closed at 201. If I was going to walk through that door, I had to be there at two o'clock and walk through that door. And that was the most important door I ever walked through. And I look back and go, how many things in my life would have changed significantly if I wouldn't have walked through that door? And at the time, it seemed very far out. There was no reason. I wasn't recruited. There was, there was no reason for me to walk through that door. And I, and I still, to this day, I don't understand why it happened, um, but it gave me faith to go, okay, the adventure – Say yes more times than you think, because that's what creates a rich life and the adventure that that creates struggle and 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 a strenuous life that you become stronger from. And and I, I could equate almost every good thing in my life to that decision, just about. Absolutely. And what I found as well is that you can you can walk through the door and then get to that point. And then you know if you if you realize it's not a burning desire, say, well, at least I did it. But sure. but regret is the worst thing. What if? What if I'd done that and I didn't? I, I didn't show up that next day. And man, I wish I was a uh, you know trying out for the Olympic team. And, and the thing is, the weird part, I would have never even known it. 
because when I got to the, the track team, I didn't, I, of course I'd seen the Olympics. I knew they were a thing. You watched, you know, the last Olympics were the 1992 Barcelona games. Of course I watched them and, but I didn't know there was Olympic trials. I didn't know how people, I thought these were these magical people that somehow were selected out of Pluto that were just dropped in this Olympic thing because they were held to such high standard. There wasn't, I, I didn't, I just thought they were these magic astronaut people that were on an Olympic team. And then all of a sudden I'm training and my training partners are talking about, Oh, we got the, you know, I need to do this and this because the trials are in 96 and I'm looking to make it, you know, for the U S team. I'm like, wait, hold on. You're going to be one of those people. They go, well, if this and this and this happens, I will be. And, and then it was like, Oh, there's a road to this. There's a path. I didn't know there was a path. I thought this just happened. I, I didn't know how it happened. It was just magic. And I go, wait, so people that I know, and then I started training and competing against people. And then I kind of go, I know Olympians. Oh, so they're people too. And to go back to that movie, the edge with, um, uh, what's the, uh, uh, you know who I'm talking about? Not Sean Connery, but the other guy, uh, Anthony Hopkins. And, and so his whole thing is, you know, we talk about the bears chasing him and kind of stalking him and he's sharpening these sticks and he's telling, he's telling Baldwin like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to get him to come in. And when he attacks us, we're going to let him fall down on this stick and he's going to kill him. And the guy's like, Oh, you can't do that. He's a bear. And he's like, listen, there's people that do this with lions and tigers and bears all through history. And he's like, what one man can do, another can do. And that movie was kind of big. And so I started understanding that I go, hold on. I hang out with this guy. He's not magical. He's not Superman. He's not this, that, and the other, but he happens to be an all American. He happens to be an sec champion. He happens to be an Olympic hopeful. And then it demystified those abilities. I go, well, gosh, I'm only 10% weaker than this dude. I'm only throwing 20 feet less. So you mean if I just stay on this path and eventually beat this guy, I have a better chance of this doing those things myself. Oh, so then the only thing that's separating me from that is a bunch of work, time, calories, and effort. That's it. And I could I could look at those things and put them on the table and go, okay, I just apply more of those. And maybe naive naively thought this. I just apply more of those variables, and I'm going to be where that person is or further. And it happened. And, and it happened continuously to the point where I went from, you know, probably the crappiest walk on ever in South Carolina history to being, you know, in top two or three in, in a couple events and top 10 and a couple other ones. And, you know, one of the better throwers to ever come out of the program, you know, and, and that's not a slack program. I mean, we had, I'm wanting to say five Olympic Olympic throwers, just my training partners that they're alone. And, you know, so, but that was the thing we were, I was around it all the time. I remember training with Don Ellerby and Lisa Misapeka and they had the number one and two throw on uh, for the hammer throw on American soil of all time. So I was training with the two best women ever to touch the event, but they were my training partners. It was every day. So Herbert Dawn breaking a world record was just like, Hey, you showed up at another meet and that's what you do. So when you're around that all the time, you just believe, Oh yeah, that this is, this is the work ethic. This is what it takes. And eventually you win most of the meets you go to. Cool. That's how this works. All right, good. Let's go. Uh, had I not been in that environment, there's no way I would have succeeded the way I did because you don't you don't have a framework of you don't even know it's, it could exist. Yeah, and that speaks very highly of of that phrase. You know, you're the sum total of the five people closest to you. If you want to excel at something, you need to put yourself in a room where you're the worst. 
you know, and oh. be surrounded by mentors. I was the worst by far. And, and you've probably heard the story. You're, you're exactly right. Um, the story when I first got to the University of South Carolina, I went to Lyft and we had some, some solid recruits, you know, state champion from Ohio, state champion from New Jersey, state champion from Arizona, national championship from Canada. Like those were the freshmen I came in with. And I'm the guy who was like eighth at the upper state championship in a and I didn't even make it the upper state in the regional or a fifth in the region. I mean, I was just like nobody, a literal nobody in South Carolina, who's a weak, weak state in the high school for throwing. So again, it was like kindergartners playing with high school kids. And so I got there and coach told me pretty quickly, he said, okay, I need you to, you're going to train on the rack with the girls until you're stronger than them. And that was a hard thing. Pride wise coming from a family who we lift weights, but I just, I just didn't have the time under the bar and I wasn't, I wasn't a man yet. So I remember the day I had to squat 365 for five, uh, weighing probably 180. And that I beat Lisa Misapeka by five pounds. She went 360 for five. I went 365 for five. And I actually bumped up my max that was actually over what I was supposed to do just because I couldn't take being beaten by a female every freaking day for, for months. And that was how I graduated off that rack where they let me start training with the guys. And but, you know, people are like, oh, that's cruel. To, I was like, no, it's not. I, we, I was just trained on the rack. There were people my strength level. It wasn't boys, it wasn't girls. It was just the dudes were stronger and the girls weren't quite as strong. All they were, they were super freaks. And um, but then when you get that mindset, I mean, we used to we used to kind of elitistly laugh. It's like, you know, guys would come in, they trained for a couple of years, and it's like, gosh, that guy can't even squat five hundred pounds yet. Is he is he trying? And it's kind of, I look back and go, Oh my gosh, that's a lot of weight. It is but, for me. It's a hell of, I mean, I'd never get right, to 500 it's a, pounds. <laughs> it's a lot, but it, you get this weird vacuum that I re- I remember one of our athletes was, was trying to power clean 308, 140 kilos. We you know call it three blues. And I just remember, couldn't understand how you could be at the program for that long and you couldn't do that. And, and I forgot that a year or two before I was that guy, but I had just said, okay, I'm going to be this strong. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be that strong. And again, it, I look back, I go, gosh, it's kind of asshole elitist thing to say, but you get blinded. You get blinded to what excellence is, and then you don't understand if people aren't putting in the same amount of effort or maybe have the same amount of talent. And it's just an immature thought, right? But when you're around, you know, one of my roommates, well, three of my roommates squatted 620 for six the same day. So you're around that. And you just go, well, 500 isn't that heavy. Like it's not those guys. And, but you know, then you forget, oh, right. Sorry. You're a three-time NCAA champion and and three-time Olympic, you know, eventually a three-time Olympic shot putter. But when that's your basis of what you're around, I mean, you could, you could do some amazing things when, like you said, the sum of those top five people or happen to be probably five of the top 10 in the world. So again, Forrest Gump, like I just, I didn't know that I walked into the wrong room or the right room. Yeah, but I think that's the thing. That's a great analogy because the one thing Forrest Gump never let in his mind was the thought that he couldn't do something. You know, yes. I know he's not actually real for everyone out there. <laughs> he's a fictional <laughs> character, but that's the whole point is that, you know, whether it's the adaptive community with, you know, with his leg brace when he was small and, and believing that he could overcome that um, or, you know, all the, the adventures that took him on. It was just that dogmatic, I couldn't care what you think, I'm going to do this anyway. 
yes, I'm going to follow the program. I'm going to do what you said I'm supposed to do. Anyway, he learns how to shrimp and I talked to Bubba. That's how I'm supposed to do this. And then he went and did it, you know, and he, you look at it and you go, gosh, it's, it's really so simple. Stay in your lane, follow the program and, and just don't quit. And you're going to get so much further down the line than like trying to switch horses every, you know, every lap. Yeah. And stay humble. Another big lesson. Stay humble. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he just, he just did it and it was, it was great. And, um, you know, and I had a, I had a drive. I wanted, I wanted to be one of the guys at the cool kids table when, when they would go around at the, the banquet and these guys would, you know, get all these awards for winning this meet and that meet and the other thing. I said, that sounds great. So, you know, going back to that reward system that I learned early in life, go, it's better to be on that side of the fence. Uh, and I don't like the coaches having to come to me and say, Hey, you have to take study hall and do this and that and the other thing because your grades suck. And then, then, you know, you go to the banquet and these other kids are getting plaques because they're getting 3.0s and 3.5s and the competitive nature inside me goes, well, I want one of those. Oh, I just have to show up to all my classes and pay attention. Good. Done. I'm going to follow, you know, just like Forrest Gump, I'm going to follow the directions, do that. And, oh man, look, it worked. So people, people over, they over analyze things. Sometimes it's just really simple, you know, like getting strong, getting strong. Isn't very hard. You do the work and you eat and you rest. It's really kind of that simple. Um, but it's really easy to make it sound like magic. Now, high end human performance is a different thing, but general basal strength levels is pretty simple. Yeah. I think that's the thing that really confuses just a lot of people, probably less now, but certainly let's say five, seven years ago where, you know, people start getting in. I saw it in the, in the gym even, you know, now they've got knee wraps and wrist wraps and a headband and, you know, socks <laughs> up to their thighs socks and-, and creatine and BCAAs and, and like, for fuck's sake, you just need to show up and, yep. and work for an hour and then drink, you know, have a banana, drink some water. And then come back yep. again tomorrow and don't do it every day. Take rest days. But yeah, it's, there's, there's so much white noise driven by, by marketing that people are confused how simple it actually is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You, you put all these other marketing things in there that just try to camouflage the hard work and time that's needed. You can't, you can't bake a cake in five minutes. I don't care how hot you turn it up. It, you, you, there's time that you need to, to have. And, you know, I look back at the training now, the training, the actual programming we had during those years was very simple. Um, it was very brutal, but it was simple. It was high volume and you couldn't really do it after about 22 years old, just because the fault you just, you would break down. You could only like take that dose of exercise, which I found in about for about a three year period of time, four years, you were walking on eggshells, five years, you were usually hurt. But man, if you wanted to fast track to get good in three years, that was it. Here's the weird part. It was fifty out. It was fifty weeks a year. You had to, oh, we had a week off after indoor nationals, a week off after outdoor nationals, and the training was the basics of it were the exact same every week. And we and we snatched twice a week. We cleaned twice a week. We squatted twice a week. We benched twice a week, and there were just percentages, <clears throat> and it would just go up every five every four weeks, and it was just like a seesaw that was a never ending seesaw. And you look at it and you go, there's no way that you could do this. You go, yeah, you can, you do it from this period to this period to get brutally strong. And it, it was just stupid, simple. And, but you had to wear 
a group of people could follow it and they believed it. And the key is they believed it. We all believed that every four weeks we were going to hit those predetermined maxes. And the peer pressure was so great, almost a little bit like the East German systems. They were so great that you knew you had to hit it or you were letting the group down and or you were losing your, your pecking, your spot in your pecking order within the group. And you would rather die than have that happen. Yeah. Well, I want to transition to to Soren X again before we run out of time and, and don't even get oh, to sure. talk about the company itself. Um, <laughs> you can just give them the website. It's good. <laughs> so, you know, like you, you, you kind of touched on at the beginning. Your, your father started making his own racks. So kind of lead us through some, the cliff notes of, of um, you know, the the first rigs he put in, in schools. And then, and then I think a really pivotal point that I was uh, – you know, uneducated on was the birth of, you know, the rig that, that you guys have, which oh, yeah. obviously we see in a lot of um, facilities these days. Sure, sure. So, so I got to Sornex in 1999. I had a two week break between my last um, USA championships as a collegian. And dad said, all right, well, you can start whenever you want after college but it better be July 1st. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> my last meet, I think was the 22nd of June. So I had about seven or eight days to fish. And then it was, it was rocking. Um, just started off and, and I was basically just assisting dad. And of course it, you know, snowballed into, I was always doing training and stuff like that. And so installs and, and then kind of, I was still training for the, the 2000 Olympic trials in the hammer throw. And so I, I kind of, talking with dad, we came up with some specific pieces of equipment that would help my training and in, in where we saw weaknesses. For instance, um, you know, everyone knows how, uh, rotary muscles are important and, and trunk support for like a thrower or just in, in general anywhere. But, you know, so at that point I was 230 pounds. I had a 600 pound back squat, a 420, 430 front squat, a 365 clean. I was strong, you know, could I be stronger? Sure. But I was strong. But so we started looking at more sp- specific things that I needed to throw the hammer far for the upcoming Olympic season. So I wanted to do an exercise that incorporated a bar that would have rotary motion. And dad and I created the landmine, you know, that was 1999. Um, that was our invention. And you see, that's probably one of the most copied, um, pieces of equipment, you know, <laughs> in the world today, basically in strength and conditioning, every, you know, everyone knows them as landmine. Well, why do we name it the landmine? Because it was explosiveness at ground level, because I was doing explosive movements in a rotary fashion and <clears throat> did not even really make the unit for, 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 you know, consumption, i.e. sale to other people. I made it for me. Uh, it, we made it for me to train and, and to try to get an edge uh, and the Olympic trials. And of course, a few coaches saw it and liked it and everything like that. We made a couple, but it was never like, Hey, we're going to retire on the landmine. And so unfortunately we didn't protect it, you know, legally or anything like that. And we sold them and I would just go around and kind of demo this whole landmine thing in the early two thousands. People were like, wait, what is this thing? And so came up with a lot of the protocol for that. And then, you know, then other companies started knocking them off and, you know, kind of the story. Um, so landmine was kind of the first hit that that I had with the company, and uh, but the biggest key of it was I was still training, and I was not only I was out from under the tutelage of my college coaches, so now I was on my own. I was having to turn over every stone to how do I make that ball go further. <clears throat> 
So I traveled to go see Judd Logan. I traveled to see Don Babbitt. And, and I would go to all these seminars and camps and clinics. And when I would go to do sales calls to different universities, I would go and find their strength coach. I'd find their throws coach. And I'd take them to dinner. And I just tried to suck out every little bit of answers that any of these people had on, on human performance. And so over the next 10 to 15 years when I was competing, whether it be track and field or in the, the uh, Scottish Highland Games, you know, I was there to sell the coach and make sure that, that they were taken care of for their equipment. But, a, but just as equally, I was there to learn to how could I get better in my human performance um, increase. And so inadvertently, that helped me in Sorenex because I was able to take those ideas of what needed to occur and turn them into pieces of equipment that actually would help the, the, um, the, the strength conditioning field. So again, without throwing and without training and competing, my mindset and my target wouldn't have been there on that specifically. It would have been more common to what everyone saw in the industry was equipment salesmen that were just guys that were car salesmen that happened to be selling equipment. And that was, I think, Sorenex is one of the first companies that came on that was like, hold on, we're training for a purpose. We're trying to re-gear and retool what this industry is doing. And it wasn't the typical, I hate to say, like the the slacks and cologne guy that's going to, you know, come in there and he's going to quote you high high uh, quantities and try to try to get you a heavy discount with all this and this and sell you a bunch of crap that's new and whatever. This was, hey, let's go out and have a beer talk about training, talk about programming, and then try to solve your problem with an actual tool that that could do that. And so that's where I think we really started um, pulling away from the competition in one regard uh, from an innovation standpoint and kind of how we kind of tooled and wrote how in many ways that the the strength world handles their sales and solutions. And that was that was kind of one of the things that really kind of happened for me competing. Yeah. Well, we met um, for the very first time at the showroom in TSAC. I think, I think it was 2016. And you had, you know, the, all the bells and whistles on them, one of your most beautiful rigs. Um, <laughs> Thanks. And it, and it is, it was an amazing piece of equipment. Um, and around that same time, the, the fire department I worked for then, we fought tooth and nail to finally get, um, a, a budget and this happens all over probably the world certainly certainly the u.s where these men and women are fired up they're like look we want to you know improve the the fitness and the strength and conditioning in first responders you know whether it's police fire whatever department they're in and they get this budget but then it it's, breaks my heart because they'll spend it on this low but low bid shit because of like you said they've been pitched by some rep or they just look purely at the price tag and, you know, the, the, the concept of false economy couldn't be more pertinent in this environment because a year later, rather than adding to their gym with the next year's budget, they're replacing all the, the crap that they bought the year before. Right. And I, and I, you know, I'm asking this because I know that, you know, that you guys have a product that is going to be standing there for years and years. What makes Soronex different than the shitty equipment that you see out there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I mean, I don't like to speak ill of, you know, any specific you know, companies out there, but I, I just don't think many of them really train. They don't love it. They don't, they don't, um, they don't have the passion for it. So you can't, you can't be deep water and into an industry if that's not your, in your blood, I don't believe. 
you know, I'm, I'm a rifle guy as well and archery. Um, I've made the mistake that, you know, nothing against Dick sporting goods. I made the mistake to take my bow to Dick's to have it tuned up and they have a pro shop and they have a guy back there and I had to get something mounted back in the day and it was cheap. It was fast and it was close. So I went there and they screwed up my bow four ways to Sunday to where I had to stop. I had to take it down to Jeffrey Archery, who's been around since the 40s, and take it to the Yoda man that's back there that knows everything about archery and spend four hours with him. And it's a little bit more expensive and it takes a little bit longer and everything. But I walked away going, I know my bow is the best possible setup I could possibly have anyone do. And now if I have a if I have a bad shot, it's on me. It's not on the equipment. And that's exactly how I look at the strength industry. Go to the people who understand and can answer the questions for you, not that are knocking off something that looks similar and are just trying to bait you with a heavy discount or marketing or, you know, some other nonsense. And then when you see that same sales guy two years later, he's like, yeah, I'm selling insurance now. Nothing wrong with insurance but I'm not going to the pizza guy to fix my long range rifle. And so I, I always believe, and you have to find the zealots. You have to find people that they would rather do nothing else than what they're doing. And those are the people you can learn from. And it might not be just the product that they're selling you and actually, you know, the, the purveyor of that equipment or that gun or bow or fire hose or whatever it might be. I always talk about you get within network. When you deal with high level people, you you there's a fiduciary relationship that allows uh, there's let's let's just say for instance someone buys a rack from us versus another company. Are we going to be more expensive? Yes, generally. We have all American labor. We do it right here, and honestly, it's more expensive to lead the industry. We have more R and D. We have to we have to do things differently. It's easy to copy. It's when they say you know the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese, and so it's hard to to lead. Other people could draft off of you, but that's generally where we are in the industry. So other people are going to be able to take our things and and copy them. Unfortunately, they don't know what what we were thinking. And I don't mean we exactly always. There's other people that do some great stuff and in every industry. But when the originators, you don't know what they were thinking and where they were going with it unless you're dealing with that specific person. Uh, you could take a snapshot of a movie and try to tell you what the story is going on. But if you only have a snapshot, you don't have context. And context is the biggest part of it. So uh, that's why I would say deal with someone who really loves it because they could say – like, for instance, you had mentioned about the racks and rigs. Well, 10 years ago-ish, um, I was designing a, a rack, and I, I said, hold on. Before I start doing this, all this custom stuff, and we were known for custom racks and different storage pieces and all these other things that go on it because that's what we did forever. In mean, 30 years, we were doing that. I said, hold on. Before we do that, let's write down everything that we don't like about racks from every, from every manufacturer currently. Let's write down all the things that we do like, and then let's write down the things that we wish a rack could do. What are other things that look like a rack that a rack could potentially do if the rack was altered at its core basic level fabric level to do what we came up with was the four hole 
the four hole four sided rack design that is basically utilized by every manufacturer probably on God's green earth at this point. <clears throat> that was the rig system. We looked and we said, hold on, all these people are trying to weld up all these cockamamie things, whether it be a CrossFit gym or a fire or, or, a, or a police department or overseas or wherever it may, may be. And everything is custom. Everything has to be cut apart if they move. And let's, let's come up with a system that is replicatable parts that are like Legos or like a Picatinny rail or, or, uh, or an erector set that this could just be put together. So instead of being a custom piece of equipment, it is, it becomes customizable by the customer. So now the customer is educated on what their parameters are and then they could explore and come up with their own solutions. And so that was something that I'm probably most proud of what Sorenex has put on the market because it legitimately changed how strength conditioning and, and specifically how the facilities are created. And that was in 2000, I want to say 10 ish, uh, maybe a little before that actually, cause we had them at the CrossFit games in 08. Um, anyway, that, that was something that I think we, we came up with something that was extremely effective that I'm very proud of that we were able to, to change the world with. But again, if that's the case and you get to deal with someone who was on the forefront and has the context of it, you're now in network and they could help you with the non-tangibles. The tangible is actually the piece of equipment, the rack, the bench, whatever it may be. But by dealing with that person or company, you now have, in my opinion, right to ask all the other questions that go along with it. If I didn't buy a bow or buy my equipment from Jeffrey Archery, I'm not going to walk in there and ask for amazing service and ask, ask them to spend three hours with me working on my shot technique if I'm going to go spend money at Dick's. So respect who's who you're learning the information from and respect who's changing your life. And the way to respect them and to honor them and to support them is to buy their stuff. And so that's kind of how I see it. And, but our goal is to continue to give value to the strength conditioning world. And when we cease to give value, well then don't support us anymore. But if we're giving value, I ask that you at least look contextually where that's coming from, because that stuff isn't free. It doesn't come, it doesn't grow under a tree. It costs money to continue to explore. Yeah. And then you said about being a little bit more expensive than that's where the false economy comes in. And they have right. the same issue with staffing and, and the fire service. Like they work these crazy, you know, work weeks at the moment and the knee jerk response as well. It'll be too expensive to hire more people. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're killing them all. So long term, right. it's a lot right. more expensive, you know, versus the same with this investing the word investing in Invest. your strength and conditioning program in whatever, you know, profession you're in is A, going to allow you to expand on it. So start with a rack and just some sleds and, and, and slam balls and some kettlebells and then work out from there. And then that is investing in your people. But if you get stuff that's just going to fall apart, not only are you just throwing money down the drain and adding to some you know landfill somewhere as well, right. but you know the chances of your people getting hurt are probably higher. Yeah, absolutely. Your chance of getting hurt or higher. Then there's always frictional cost too, right? Because then you're talking about the frictional cost isn't the actual cost you paid money-wise, but the cost of headache, pain in the butt, having to redo it, the time that it takes to going through the entire customer experience. But then the time that it takes to replace it, people don't take that into account as well. Um, and, you know, Like for instance, on a gun or a bow or whatever – I generally try to buy the best I research. It's not always the most expensive, but I try to buy the best. And I've tried to, even if I can't afford the best one, I'll wait or I'll, 
I'll skimp somewhere else in my life that's skimpable to pay for the best one because not only do I have the highest chance of having a great experience and having that piece of equipment perform for me, um, I walk away. I, it's like it's like marrying up. Because I'm married up and my wife's amazing, not the only reason, but <laughs> I'm, I, I'm that less tempted to look around at other women. I know I got the best one. So I look at that in my gear as well. Get the best one and then I save time because I'm not looking on the internet every day to what I could have, should have done. And so now I'm going, oh, I'm running this scope or this gun. Ah, I believe in it. I trust it. Let's go to work. And now I have more time to shoot, more time to hunt, more time to lift, whatever it may be because I've already bought into whatever that thing was and I've done my homework, I've done my research and I move on and I'm not sitting there all the time and, and every time I get to use it, I know I'm using the best one. And that's a nice little dopamine hit too. Gosh, I love using this Leupold scope or I love using this whatever rifle or bow or whatever because I know that I got the best and it performs. And if it doesn't, now I could go back to that company and go, hey man, I was told that you guys were the best. Everyone said you're the best. Obviously, this is not the performance that I expected. What can we do? And now because I paid for it, I have a I have a, a, a real voice in that versus, you know, getting it on the cheap or you get whatever. It's like, ah, I, I, basically you could get, here's how it works. There's a trifecta. And this is kind of an all product or service world. You could get a great product. You could get a great price or you could get a great, a great service. Pick two out of three, but you can't get all three. That's how that works in reality. Because you're not going to get the best product at the best exemplary product, exemplary service for the cheapest price. It, you can't do it. It mathematically doesn't work. If you do that, the company goes out of business because they didn't charge enough. And so you start looking at that. And then, you, then I ask my customers, these are the three components. Pick your two that you have to have. I know we'd all like all three, but really let's pick two. And then once we pick those two, then we could decide, are we a fit for them and are they really a fit for us? If their number one thing is cost, well, then that's more important than service or quality to you. Then I'm probably not your guy. Yeah. The same with food. I and mean, I talk about that a lot. You know, 100%. If you want to, you know, if you want to pay a dollar at McDonald's for two cheeseburgers, then there is going to be a cost to that, which is obviously your health. But if you yes. want to take that money, actually invest, you know, three or four dollars but save money on all the prescription meds down the road that might be a better better investment what yeah exactly and, and winning's expensive success is expensive let's just let's just boil it down to that but like you said you know now not only would you be saving money on medical expenses later but the performance expense your frictional cost by eating a one dollar burger well now you didn't get a good experience you, it didn't taste that great on the front front end you don't get good performance and you're going to have health problems later. You paid for it three times versus if you got something super high quality and super clean, you love it when you eat it. It, it makes you feel great initially and you don't have the frictional cost later. You, you won three times. And that's if people could start thinking of things in that regard, um, you know, the world, the world would be a, a safer and, and uh, more, more functional place, I think. Absolutely. Well, my uh, the, the owner of my gym wants to – 
wanted me to ask you, and we'll do it obviously after we're done recording, but touch with you as far as um, putting Soranex rigs in our gym. It's a pretty pretty good size CrossFit gym too. So oh, I'd love to. I'm hoping that we're gonna yeah that make make <laughs> that happen. But I wanted to one more touch on one more area, then get to Summer Strong quickly before we start wrapping up. But um, you are used through you know a, a, several gyms in branches of the military. I know Jeff Nichols speaks very highly of your stuff. Rudy Reyes, Pat McNamara. I've had Excuse me, I have two of the three on the show already. Um, Great. What is it, you know, What? how did you begin that relationship with the military and what is it that they find value as tactic athletes? Well, I have, I, I always appreciated the military, although I didn't know a lot about it um, early on because I just didn't have a lot of exposure. And, uh, you know, I really, I didn't have a lot of exposure to a lot of things, but weightlifting in the outdoors, to be honest. And um, so, as I got out of college and out of athletics, I love athletics, but unfortunately athletics to be good at athletics, especially if you're in a individual sport, you have to be very selfish. And I know this kind of goes against what everyone says as a team player, you can't be selfish. No, as an individual sport, hammer thrower, whatever it may be Olympic swimmer, you got to be very selfish. Meaning you can't worry about what the guy to the right and the left of you is doing. You got to get yours. I got to get my training in. I got to get my lifting in. I got to take my recovery seriously. And if you don't F you, I don't care. Get out of my way. Interesting in all, but as you get older, I think you kind of realize, Hey, this is, that isn't what the world's about. And what I realized from meeting some of the men that you had, uh, previously listed, uh, and becoming friends with them, I realized in many ways, I liked how the military and the first responder groups looked out for each other. And they, the man to the right and the left of them was their strength. And was their their point of sacrifice if need be? And I, from a humanity standpoint, and a in a more mature man standpoint, from a husband, from a from a father standpoint, I could jive with that much more than I could just because I was good at stuff because I can make it land f- far from my feet. And so that was a maturation um, point for me. And I, I just love the sacrifice. I love standing. I love the idea of people standing for something they believe so much that they're willing to die for it. And I was, that was not the path that I chose at the time of my life that I could have chosen that path. And so I want to make sure that the men and women who do choose that path, that they're not only applauded, but they're supported. And, uh, the people realize that there's some civilians out there that really appreciate that because there's nothing that could be more heartbreaking than, than, people that push so hard and do the hard stuff and do the, the self, the selfless things. And they're met with, you know, jeering or, or, at, or at, at best just lack of information, lack of understanding. Um, so we just, we all kind of jived and, and, but we also realized, you know, in order to be a seal, um, in many ways or, or MARSOC or whatever, uh, CAG or whatever it might've been <clears throat> and not to, make too tight of a parallel, but there is a discipline level and a level of suck that you have to overcome in this, in the same way that I did in athletics. And we, cause we understood like, Oh, you have to go there in your mind. And so there was a mutual respect. Of course, we liked a lot of the same things, whether it be, you know, human performance and guns and all the other kind of stuff. So there, there were some friendships. Um, but I think it's all friendship and all of all the relationships are, are, born with mutual respect. And so we've, 
we've become very close with the first responder military community. And some of my best friends are from that community. It's, it's even more so than probably, I'd say about half and half from the, the athletic world and then the military world. Um, so that's, that's happened. And then when the military and the first responder world started training like athletes, more, a little bit more specific and more human performance based, we were kind of the go-to guys in that space. And so again, there was mutual respect and we had to make sure that we took care of them, not only because of business, but because of, of personal reasons that we wanted to make sure that our men and women who are protecting this country are taken care of. And, uh, it was just a great fit and great fit. And, and, uh, so I have a lot of those, those people at my house and my farm and, and, um, we built some great friendships. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, it's great to hear. Um, well, speaking of that, I know Jeff spoke at one of your summer strongs and you got it coming up again in May 15th to 17th. So tell me sure about do. this year's. I know I looked on the site. You didn't have any of the speakers listed yet. Are you able to give right. any spoilers or? Uh, no spoilers. We'll be listing maybe by the time this airs. Okay. I think we're going to be, we're going to be, we're waiting a one or two confirmations still, but, um, it's going to be a good one. We're it's always a good one. The Summer Strong is is just an event unlike any other. It's how would I describe it? Um, part seminar, part conference, part TED talk, part competition, part group therapy. <laughs> I don't know, like you, part experience. Um, and we've kind of almost named it. So the summer strong expo is the summer strong experience. It's kind of like when you people I heard went to Woodstock, it wasn't a concert. It was an experience. And I don't mean to build it to that epic proportion. I'm just basically going off of the experience that I've had and other people have told me. So we pulled together about 15 to 20 of people from our world and our life and people we run across that are what we could consider thin air people, the people that, that live not only on the top of the mountain of their prospective fields, but the ones that are always climbing to that thinner air that's just less inhabited by just, just by mediocrity. And thankfully in our job description that we get to interact with a lot of those people and so we invite those people as to be speakers, some of them from the human performance world, some could be from the military world, some from, from the uh, music world. And if, but they all share the same thing, a super high level of passion and they've had self-sacrifice to get where they are. And they, the biggest thing that they're still driving forward, they're not sitting on their laurels going, look at me, I have a world record. They're looking for the next adventure and the next challenge. And so we bring those people together and um, have a three-day weekend of some amazing experience. I won't give you too much more than that, but we'll be listing the uh, speakers here soon. And um, we're coming up on our 13th year of doing this. And I think we got the recipe down pretty well. Brilliant. Now, where, where do people find the SummerStrong website? I want to say we have SummerStrong.com, if not SummerStrongExpo.com. You could probably go to SummerStrong Sorenex and find a number of – uh, ways to get there. You can go to sornex.com and you could click on, I think we'll have some banners playing soon for summer strong. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook. We'll have a lot of information about it. It is a limited, uh, seating event. I'm wanting to say we bring about five or 600 people. Um, we sell out every year and we have people show up the day of every year. They're like, Oh, I just thought I could just show up. And like, ah, unfortunately, like that's not fair to everyone else who got on it quickly and purchased tickets and, and, believed in it so 
in, intentionally, we sometimes don't tell the speakers um, until a little bit later. Part of it is administratively trying to get everyone hashed out, but also it's we like to reward the ones who believe you know, they believe in what it's going to be without having to hear is going to be there. You know, it's like, it's like you ask someone to go out to, Hey, you want to, you want to come to my party? And if the first thing they ask is who's going to be there, then you don't really want to come to my party, you know? And so we, it's a little bit of a test. So you're keeping Justin Bieber under, under wraps. And so <laughs> under wraps, Justin Bieber, <laughs> you, you've now spoiler alert. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> So, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I ha- I've never been, I've seen the lineup obviously the last few years. Um, definitely something I want to get to one day this year. I, I inadvertently became a stuntman again out of the blue. I didn't see it coming. Oh, perfect. So, so that's kind of, uh, got my, my, my calendar bound up for a bit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the people that you've had on there in the past, I mean, I can totally see why people don't need to see who's coming next. They just <laughs> know it's going to be some other phenomenal people in the strength and conditioning world. Well, thank you. And I will give a small spoiler. If you're in the stunt world, you might like one of my presenters this year. Ah, interesting. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, we had Tate, we had Tate Fletcher last year was from the stunt world and movie world. Um, but we have someone else this year. Excellent. Well, I'll keep looking out. I mean, if, if, if I get down the road and I see that weekend's free and and there are some tickets still available, I will come up only in Florida myself, but but yeah. uh yeah fantastic all right so some closing questions the first one i love sure. to ask is there a book that you love to recommend it can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different Ooh, unfortunately i haven't read a whole lot of books recently just on the by i've been more podcast hitting podcasts because i could take in uh quick bouts of information um Try to think of some ones I read in the years past that I really enjoyed. Um, that was a Becoming Superman. Uh, that was a really interesting one, or something Superman. It was about flow state. I really enjoyed that. Um, I have to think about that. So unfortunately, I, I, I feel kind of dumb that actually I just got Kyle Carpenter's new book. I haven't read that yet, but I know he's a good friend of mine, and, and so I'm really excited about getting to read that. So that will be my my next read. Brilliant. All right. Well, same question, but a movie. Favorite movie is Red Dawn. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. And I, and I, I, it's like the one movie that I'll cry every time I've watched it. And I've seen it a hundred times and people are like, wow, I, I cry the notebook. I'm like, yeah, Red Dawn's kind of my thing. And I think the biggest thing is, is, is the sacrifice and you know, the, the people sticking together, the brothers sticking together and going up against insurmountable odds for for a purpose and a reason, and maybe that's kind of in my DNA. Uh, maybe why I have such a, a, a kindred spirit or, or respect for our uh, first responders and our military. And I mean, that was one of my favorite movies since I was six years old. Right. Which why the heck was my parents let me watch Red Dawn? <laughs> Scare the hell out of you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. I think I'm gonna make a movie called Red Notebook, where it's gonna make everyone cry. Well, you know, I'll be your first. I'll I'll just be bald like a baby. (laughs) All right. The same question again. Are there any documentaries that you love? Uh, I will say the documentary that makes my skin crawl because it's so intense is uh, Free Solo. Yes. That that movie, geez, Larry. I want to watch it again, but I don't want to watch it again. Um I don't know if my hands could take that anymore. My my hands sweated through the armrest on the plane. 
So, uh, no, the documentaries, uh, you know, some of the old training documentaries I used to love. If you want to see something, an interesting one, it's called The Soul is Greater Than the World. It was a 1980s documentary, uh, self-made documentary with a, a Swedish discus thrower named Ricky Bruch. And it's a weird movie. It's kind of like his version of Pumping Iron. And um, it's insane. And it's all subtitles. But you'll get a little bit of a window into my mind and that was we had that movie when we were in college and like again think about who in the mid 1990s in college was watching a, a swedish subtitle weird autistic artistic movie about training for discus throwing but that became like our favorite movie and and just some of the lifts and some of this the uh philosophical ideas that he had as he was training for the 1984 olympics it was uh it was a great movie it was, it was somewhat of a documentary and somewhat of a movie and it's just complete insanity Brilliant. I've never heard that before. That's why I love these questions. It always pulls out some interesting reads and, and movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. The next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Ooh. Um, do you know uh, Mike Rodriguez? Um, no, I do not. Mike Rodriguez. Uh, I think he's Monsters Dads uh, on Instagram. Uh, he's a, one of my mentors and, uh, I work with, with him. He's the chairman of the global war on terror, uh, memorial, uh, service. So basically what he's doing, he was a, he ran the green beret foundation. He was an absolute, uh, stunner overseas for years and, and just real deal guy. And, um, he works now, uh, he worked for, for George W for years. And now he, he is the chairman of a, uh, the global war on terror is the longest running war in American history. And he is running the, the, uh, notoriety to try to try to build up funding. You know, you had the Vietnam war memorial, you have all the different war memorials, but there is nothing from the global war on terror. Although it is the first generational war that we've had, meaning, you know, his son is actually patrolling some of the same mountains and canyons that he patrolled, Wow, which is, which is insane when you really start thinking about it. So, um, and, and I've been named as an ambassador of that, a group, which is a huge honor. And, uh, so we're, we're trying to get no, get some people on board because they've already cleared it, uh, to have it in the, uh, I believe that they're called the registry area of DC where it's kind of closed off to anything, but they've got a, a go ahead to build a memorial and it, it really, it affects every single person on the planet, but it, every person in our country, by far. Um, and so I think he's, I mean, and he won't do the whole, you know, pushing the whole thing for GWAT, but you talk about a guy who's been around it and very interesting and has a, a, a very colorful story, um, military wise, but also personally, and just a story of redemption and a story of principles. And uh, he's one of my mentors and I would highly suggest him. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, he sounds sounds amazing. I think I've heard that mentioned once. I don't know if it was Mike specifically, but I, I'm sure one of my other guests talked about the memorial. Right. So, so, yeah, yeah, they call it, they call him Rod, uh, Mike Rodriguez. They call him Rod. And if you look, if you've seen the book that George W. did uh, painting of different veterans, I don't know if you've ever seen that book. And, uh, and Mike is actually on the cover. He has one blue eye. And, um, that his eye got knocked out. And, um, and so George W's first, uh, 
artistic approach to to paint portraits was Mike. And so uh, they're they're close friends, and it, it's really neat to see just how humble. And the guy could go on and on and tell you all these great things he's done, but he's never once done that. I've had to drag it out of him over the years, and um, just an amazing person with with uh, a heart of gold and just a servant's heart. So I would I would highly suggest him if he would do it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. All right. The, of course. The last question before we talk about where we can find you online, um, and obviously Soronex. What do you do to decompress when you're not running the business? And um, if I'm, it does help to train. Uh, if I could go into the cave and train a little bit, that helps to decompress. Hunting is probably my biggest decompress. I'd like to say hanging out with my kids, but because they're three, five, and eight, they're not really decompress ready at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I yes. love them, but they're more stress adders than stress deductors at this point. So, um, you know, sometimes like I was really, really just burnt a couple of weeks ago. And I hate to say, like, I just went in the cave. I just told the wife, got the kids down. I was like, I'm going to go to the cave. And that, that's what I call my little man cave or fam cave that I have at the house. And I could shoot archery inside. And I went in there to kind of to work out. I think I did like one set of whatever lift I was doing. And I drank three beers, listened to Sturgill Simpson album on repeat for four hours straight and shot my bow for four straight hours. And the music just kept cranking. I just kept shooting until my rhomboid got to the point where I couldn't pull the bow back anymore with any type of accuracy. But I walked out of there. I was like, okay, I'm fixed. I'm back. Like, but I had to not talk to anyone and just talk about that. Like, flow state. I had to get into a flow state where everything else closed off. I was able to focus on the flight of the arrow. One or two beers helped me relax. I was enjoying the music. And I I hate to say really for me, relaxing is generally a a solitary situation because I'm pulled in so many directions and I have 165 employees. I have, you know, all this other stuff that's great, but sometimes not being the boss is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, brilliant. It's funny. Someone said that just this morning. I worked out before the interview, and uh, um, one of the women that I worked out with said that, um, that uh, children are the the something like something to the effect of children are the bring me the biggest joy and the most anger simultaneously. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What did we we jokingly call? <laughs> <laughs> I love I love my oldest son, but he was very difficult starting out. Uh, and and my wife and I just jokingly we love him to death, and but we kind of jokingly call him the great ruiner. He's like the great ruiner of all of our fun times. It's like oh, it's just she and I, and then he gets up at you know three in the morning and is jumping on her bed and all you know, this. Oh gosh, just would you go to sleep? You're, you're ruining a good sleep, or you're ruining a good meal. It's like all right, listen, he can't know he's the great ruiner because I love him to death, but man. Kids are kids are uh, trying at times. Yes, yeah. Mine's twelve now, so he's he's on that independence kick where he's out with his friends oh. all day, and you know we're in a community where it's safe. He literally does come home when the streetlights come on, and which oh. is amazing because he's out playing. There's no kind of organized structure to it. He's just doing his thing. But uh, yeah, that that age is a good age. Now you're like, okay, now I actually want to see him more, which is a strange feeling. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I'm, now that he's eight. And now he's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is pretty rad. But the three and the five are still, you know, they're three and five. You know, they're they're very needy and they do their thing and uh, they don't have rational thoughts, which is hard for me to work around because uh, I have to be so problem solve oriented in my day job. And then I get home and I'm like, oh right, we're not gonna 
speak rationally whatsoever. This is going to be purely based on emotion that has no real cognitive, you know, prowess at all. And I have to kind of like navigate this and that's where I get a little sideways, but I'm working on it. (laughs) All right. So for everyone listening, where can they find Sorenex online and then how can they reach out to you if they want to contact you personally? Sure. You can reach Sorenex, S-O-R-I-N-E-X, Sorenex.com. That's our website. Um, Sorenex on Instagram, Sorenex on Facebook, Bert Soren, B-E-R-T-S-O-R-I-N on Instagram or Facebook. Um, those are probably good spots to try. I think we're on, we're Sorenex is on Twitter too. I am not, I guess I am, but I'm not active on it. Um, I, you know, uh, one social media platform is enough to somewhat keep up with. Yeah, I've said this a lot on this show. I, I still don't understand Twitter. I have an account, and yeah, know, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And we have a, we have a YouTube channel as well, so there's some good information is is there, and uh, you can Google us and probably find a lot of stuff you may or may not want to find. Absolutely. Um, so, Burr, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been an incredibly informative, you know, conversation. Um, I do, you know, absolutely love the products. Like I said, I got to see them in TSAC, and then I actually I have a confession. I initially was was kind of blown away by the magnificence of the rigs that you brought. But then more recently, when I explored the site, realized that you had a lot of the, you know, the, the more basic stuff as well, the sleds, the, the 150-pound uh, slam balls, I think, are, are amazing. Yeah. Um, so a lot more, you know, f- for the for the smaller departments that, that want to start slow and with small package, um, that you just have so much more than I realized once I actually explored the site. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. 